Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy the teachings from Beth Emanuel, share the links with your friends. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends about the things you are learning at Beth Emanuel. Help us grow the message. Today, I'm going to present you with the eulogy that I offered at my father's funeral. I have several times thought about sharing this eulogy with you, but the time never seemed right until this Shabbat Chaye Sarah. It's in this Torah portion that the entire concept of a eulogy first appears, as it says, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Genesis 23, verse 2. The sages of the Talmudic era translated the Hebrew word for mourned in that verse as eulogized. The Talmud says that Abraham gave a funerary oration over his departed wife, extolling her virtues and recalling her merits. A great deal of Jewish and subsequently Christian funeral custom is derived from this Torah portion, and indeed, by the end of the Torah portion, we are witness to the death and burial of Abraham, who is then reunited with his beloved wife in the tomb of the Machpelah cave. The eulogy in Judaism is not for the consolation of mourners, but rather in honor of the departed, and the custom is derived from this Torah portion, which is called Chaye Sarah the life of Sarah. Even though it actually narrates the death of Sarah, it tells the story of how Abraham bewailed, eulogized, and buried his wife. In the Torah scroll, the word translated as, and to weep for her, believe kota, appears with a small letter kaf. Reduced letters in the Torah scroll indicate places where earlier scribes corrected a spelling by supplying an omitted letter or by changing an incorrect letter. But the rabbis teach that the odd-sized letters hint towards deeper meanings. Rabbinic traditions tie significance to the diminutive letters on the principle that every letter in the Torah is fraught with meaning, and not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. In this case, the diminished letter indicates that Abraham wept over his wife only a little. Of course, he loved his wife dearly and deeply mourned her death, but Abraham did not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Last year, in April of 2019, I had the privilege of visiting Machpelah for the first time. If you are picturing a cave and a hillside, It's nothing at all like that any longer. That's what it was in Abraham's day, but the location has never been forgotten. Subsequent generations honored and venerated the location of the tomb of Abraham and Sarah, which is also the tomb of Isaac and Rebekah, and also Jacob and Leah. Not long before the birth of our master, King Herod the Great constructed an enormous mausoleum over the location. And that structure still stands there today housing a synagogue and a mosque, divided into several different chapels. It's a contested location, both Islam and Judaism claiming it as a holy site. And in this case, they are both right. Abraham is the father of both Isaac and Ishmael. At the end of our Torah portion, it says, Then his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. To this day, the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael still visit the cave and pray in the merit of Abraham. I went there with Boaz Michael with the intention of praying in the merit of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also the holy mothers there. 
Not to pray to them, mind you. We don't pray to the dead. We pray to God in memory of the dead, as we say every day, God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. I felt blessed to be able to sit in the chapel of Sarah and Manu and pray psalms and pray for God's deliverance and for my family and for all of you too. I truly do feel a connection to Abraham and Sarah as the father and mother of my faith. And I hope that you feel that connection too. I hope that to you as sons and daughters by faith, that Abraham is not just another Bible character to you, but rather that you feel the warmth and affection that you should feel for a beloved grandfather. And so too with Sarah, our beautiful, radiant grandmother. Surely they intercede before the throne of glory, not just on behalf of Israel, but also on behalf of all those who are their children by faith, as it says, a father of many nations. One year later, one year after my visit to the tomb of Abraham and Sarah, the Abraham of the Lancaster family passed into the world of truth on the holy day of the seventh day of Passover. As it says in our Torah portion, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. The day of my father's passing was particularly significant in that it was also the anniversary of the day of the death of my brother David, April 15. He died on the day of the two things that are sure in life, in an auto accident 21 years earlier. And in that loss, my father passed through his own personal Akedah, and he passed the test like Abraham. My father and mother were in many ways a modern Abraham and Sarah, and very much in love. Like Abraham and Sarah, she preceded him in death, and when that happened, we kids wondered if dad would tarry much longer, being already nearly 80 years old. It often happens that when spouses are close, the death of the second spouse follows the death of the first quickly, as if their souls are reluctant to be separated. Knowing this, my father said to me, I've decided to live. He chose life and held on to it tenaciously for another decade and a half. Before speaking of Sarah's death, the Torah twice declares the life of Sarah. It says, Now the life of Sarah was 127 years, the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died. The, the verse mentions her death only once. Why does it mention the life of Sarah twice? The mystics teach that this is to remind us that even though she has died, Sarah lives on. People of faith anticipate a second life after the first life. We die only once, but we live twice. Although she sleeps in Hebron, Sarah, our mother, lives and will live again because she was a woman of faith. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Hebrews 11.11 11. At the time of my father's passing last April, my family and all of us were in full lockdown quarantine due to the pandemic, and funerals were not allowed by order of state mandate. The family was not able to gather. The best we could do was to follow the hearse to the National Cemetery, where he was interred alongside his wife, my mother, who had been awaiting him there for nearly 16 years. There we had to watch from our cars because we were not allowed to get out due to the pandemic. My father's children, many of the grandchildren, and many of the great-grandchildren too, were finally able to gather last July 15 to honor dad on the day that would have been his 95th birthday, old and full of years. 
My siblings asked me to deliver a eulogy, and around that same time I had felt led to read the book The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. You can find a free audiobook version of the book online at bethemanuel.org. By coincidence, while preparing the eulogy, I looked back through some of Dad's last emails, and I noticed that he had made reference to the title of the book, although I don't think he had ever actually read the book. In any case, I took that as a sign, and I wrote the following eulogy, which actually is the basis for this current series of teachings about walking with God. Then I read the book, and was so impressed with its simple yet effective message that I wanted to share the concept with you and encourage us all to learn the art of the practice of the presence of God as taught by Brother Lawrence. What follows is the eulogy that I composed for my father, titled, The Days Pass By So Quickly. In his last years, I would even say in his last decade, Dad repeated an observation over and over again. It became a sort of signature to his emails, phone calls, visits, and comments at family gatherings. He repeated the sentiment, The days go by so quickly. Where does time go? The hours just seem to slip away. The years go by so quickly, and so forth. He wasn't wrong. The Bible assures us that life is short, that man's days are as an evening shadow, that all flesh is like grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, and that it passes like a dream, renewed in the morning, briefly flourishing, and in the evening fades and withers, a fleeting moment, a single breath, a morning mist, a vapor, a vanity, and grasping of wind. But honestly, I would have thought that in his last days, the opposite would have been true for Dad. I would have supposed that time slowed down, because when he was younger, he was a busy guy. I remember my father, in the years that I was in his household, to be a man under relentless newspaper deadline, constantly under pressure, easily putting in 55 to 60 hour weeks in the newspaper office, then his evening spent writing sermons for his radio show, at the typewriter every night before bed, staying up late, rising early, chasing around town to cover the news and photograph Boy Scout spaghetti dinners and Lions Club meetings, juggling ministries on the side, gardening in the summer and canning in the autumn, Saturdays cutting wood, cutting the grass, or building a shed, or whatever project he had going, Sundays preaching and leading a congregation, hosting missionaries, connecting with churchgoers, then back, back to work early Monday morning. An absolutely nonstop person who had never had enough time to do everything he was trying to do. So I would imagine that in those days, time would seem to speed away quickly and then subsequently slow down as his life slowed down. But that's not the case. In those days, he didn't complain about the days rushing past. Not that I remember. Contrast that with his latter years after mom's death when he had very little to fill his days other than the basic routines of getting up, getting dressed, making coffee, breakfast, etc. The basic routines of the day. He conceded that sometimes life felt rather boring. It was during these latter days when he was accustomed to spend long hours simply sitting and being, watching the birds at the feeder or the ducks on the river, that he became increasingly alarmed about how quickly time escaped him. He used to tell me, 
Every job expands to fill all the available time. But that doesn't account for the change in perception. As he declined and could do less, it seemed to him that time went even faster, until in these last days, when he had almost nothing to occupy his time, it became his constant refrain, the days just speed by. Why is that? There are scientific theories about why the elderly have that shift in perception. The predominant theory is that unless we are doing new things, the brain doesn't do a very good job of logging chronology, but just lumps it all together in the recall, creating the illusion that time went by quickly. That's the scientific theory. But I have a spiritual theory. I believe that as dad drew closer to leaving, and as he drew closer to the spiritual world, he became less and less connected with the world of illusion and concealment in which we ordinarily conduct our affairs. And in so doing, he drew closer to God's perspective, of which the psalmist says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. This world is called the world of concealment because God has concealed his presence from this world. He has concealed himself so that we can exist as a finite world and all that a real world of cause and effect entails. But when we die, we leave the world of concealment. Our eyes are opened and we behold the truth. We refer to the afterlife as the world of truth because the illusion of God's concealment is lifted. Part of the illusion in the world of concealment is time itself. The idea that there is a past in which things happened and a future in which things will happen is all part of the illusion that can exist only from a finite perspective of one caught up inside of time. The infinite perspective, dad used to say this, the infinite perspective is an eternal now. And in truth, there is only now. That should be obvious to us, even in this world. We can never do anything in the future, nor can we do anything in the past, but only in the now. And it's eternal because it's always now. The rest is all illusion. Isaiah says that God transcends time. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. The angels declare that he is holy, 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 who is, who was, and who is to come. Likewise, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when Moses asked God to tell him his name or the meaning of his name, he replied, I am that I am. The hope of eternity does not diminish the significance and importance of the present moment. On the contrary, it is the hope of eternity and the revelation of the world of truth that invests the present moment with meaning and significance. We believe that the dead in Christ enjoy the radiance of the presence of God, and in that radiance we will possess all things. Is there anything lacking in heaven? 
Yes, actually, there is one valuable thing that belongs to us in this world that we will not have in the afterlife or in the resurrection. What is it that you can't get in heaven? The opportunity to serve God by faith, now, at this moment, when he is concealed from view. That is a precious thing and in short supply, and it's slipping quickly away from each one of us. In heaven, the obedience of faith is a foregone conclusion, but in this world, it certainly is not. It's still powerful and meaningful in this world. In the world of truth, there's no opportunity to store up treasure in heaven, so to speak, because you're already in heaven. It's only in this world that we have the opportunity to do so. In heaven, there is no repentance from sin or opportunities to surrender to God's will because there is no sin and God's will is done as a matter of course. Those things are only possible in this world. Only in this world do we have the opportunity to love others when they seem unlovable or to show kindness to those who are unkind to us, or to seek God and pray to Him when He seems remote, invisible, and unreal. Only in this world do we have the opportunity to bring the light of God's glory and revelation, because in the next world, there is no concealment of God's glory and revelation. There is no darkness to dispel. From this perspective, every moment in this world, is precious. And that is why the Bible tells us to choose life. Though we might prefer to be with the Master, the psalmist tells us to acquire a heart of wisdom by numbering our days. Within the world of concealment, time often seems inconsequential or unimportant. And we wish it away while impatiently waiting for the red light to change, or cursing our luck for choosing the slow line at the cashier, or waiting for the next exciting thing to happen. Dad used to talk about waiting for Christmas to come when he was a kid. Our minds are distracted with the future, or consumed with what happened in the past, but uninterested in the present moment, which is to say, uninterested in real life. That's all part of the concealment. The only real time is the present moment. If the dead could tell us anything, they would surely tell us to cherish the present moment, that every moment of life is precious, a commodity not to be wasted. This is the sense of what the Apostle says, quoting Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as your fathers did in the wilderness, but exhort one another as long as it is called today. Well, when is it called today? Right now. In his last days, Dad's eyes took on an otherworldly glassiness, a strange distant stare which seemed to peer beyond the illusion of concealment as if this world had become transparent to him. His eyes seemed to fix upon something on the other side. You sometimes see the same look in the eyes of newborn children just arrived. And it was utterly remarkable to be in his presence. No words were necessary. Dad never gave up on life. 
For nearly a century, he chose life to the very end. In his last days, he spent many hours simply being still in the present moment, in the presence of quiet majesty, in the presence of the great I am, practicing the meaning of the words, be still and know that I am God, practicing the presence of God. I don't think Dad ever read that famous title by Brother Lawrence, but in one of his last emails, October 4, 2019, Dad wrote, One time, at Oak Hills Bible Institute, a man preached to the students about practicing the presence of God. He recommended, try that. It's good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He was grateful for the years God gave him, grateful for God's goodness to him, nostalgic over days gone by, and optimistic about the future hope of glory. But ultimately, he was content to remain in the present moment and reluctant to step into eternity because he knew that he had all eternity to do eternity. And from that perspective, from the eternal perspective of the eternal now and the union with the great I am, I believe the illusion of time seemed to pass quickly, to become insubstantial, fleeing away from him, slipping through his fingers, fleeting and fading faster and faster, less solid and less real. And he would say, the days pass by so quickly. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul. 